Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Cult Leader. I'm your cult leader, Spencer Henry, and boy, am I happy to see you. Don't look at me like that. Listen, we were gone last week, took the week off to mourn my 20s. I, I needed a breather, but here I am. I'm 30, fl- flirty. I'm, I'm new. I spent pretty much the last month in Palm Springs with Olivia. It was so nice to get a true solid break. And now I'm home in my office for the first time. I have an office now. Please, won't you step into my office? Can I get you an Altoid from my drawer of my desk? Case closed. Anywho, I'll say initially when we decided to go for a month, we were like, are we going to are we going to get bored here? But to be honest, it went by really fast. What is this? What is my Eat Pray Love podcast? Well, welcome to my Eat Pray Love podcast. Listen in on one man's journey from discovering myself from within and without. Namaste. We stopped by this little store in downtown Palm Springs while I was there, and we were just grabbing something, and I ended up buying this book called Palm Springs True Crime by Eric Meeks because, well, of course I did. To be honest, our family has always spent so much time in Palm Springs, so I've always wanted to do a story from Palm Springs, but none of them ever really stood out for me. I think I was always just doing like a quick Google search while I was down there, like Palm Springs murder, and nothing nothing ever really caught my fancy, but this book, I'll tell you guys, I was like, if I get this, maybe I'll get some good spooky inspo, and would you believe it? I did reading am i life-changing everyone read a book last episode we covered one of the most infamous cases like ever 
And while I love a notorious true crime story, I'm usually so much more interested in the stories that I haven't heard of. Stories that, frankly, just need to be shared. So that's where we are headed today. Now, Palm Springs, it's an interesting place. It's interesting in the sense that it's very much a mixed bag. You have very working class neighborhoods, these spread out cities full of locals, and then you have all of these like country club gated communities thrown about in like Rancho Mirage and La Quinta. And I feel like it's very vacation vibes in that sense, right? Like a lot of places that are notable travel destinations are usually surrounded by neighborhoods that are nothing like the resorts or second homes or hotels. I've always thought of Palm Springs as this like safe little bubble so I was actually really surprised to see that it has a really high crime rate. When I was doing my research I was like holy shit but as I started deep diving into the crime statistics a lot of it is like property crimes which actually makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of people that have second homes there so There's a lot of neighborhoods, especially within the gates, where probably more than half of the houses are empty on any given day, which also equates to a lot of break-ins, which you'd think like, oh, okay, well, I guess it makes sense. Rob the houses. No one's there. But like most of the houses probably don't have anything of insane value. Like people don't really keep things in their vacation homes. So like maybe you'll get a TV or something, but if you're looking for cash, probably not the place. The biggest draw to Palm Springs personally for me has always been the architecture. Not always, okay. Not when I was a baby. I wasn't a baby looking at that saying, hey, that city bank used to be a cool mid-century building. But a lot in my life. A lot of the homes have kept or emulated 1950s, 1960s architecture and just look so dreamy and perfect. Like these perfect mid-century Eichler homes. And it's gone through waves of popularity, I feel like, but a lot of Palm Springs history stems from the 1950s and 1960s, where a lot of actors, musicians, socialites began purchasing properties out there. Because it's in such like a close vicinity to LA, but still far enough, a lot of actors purchased homes out there because it was really as far as they were allowed to travel. So I'll like make up an example, but like Marilyn Monroe, right? She's famous. Say she was signed with a studio like MGM, she had to be at their beck and call and stay within a certain mile or hour radius of the studios should they need her for something. These actors would like escape to Palm Springs in order to find some peace in the desert oasis, but still be within proximity. All right, so going back to that book I read, there was this one story in particular that really stood out to me. It was called Cliff Lambert and the Boys, B-O-I-Z. It's hip, it's young, it's fresh, we love it. And it initially seemed like a very simple story, but the more that I read and the more I looked into the case, I was like, holy shit, because the people that were involved all have these like really insane, twisted backgrounds and connections with one another. And I'll get to all of this. For now, let's just journey back to December of 2008. December 7th, 2008, Cliff Lemrick noticed something odd at his neighbor's house across the street. The gate that protected the mid-century estate had been left partially open for the second day in a row, something the home's owner, Cliff Lambert, was pretty rigid about keeping closed. While he didn't know his neighbor too well, other than the fact that they shared a name, he did know that Cliff was, quote, rather persnickety about neatness and security. The neighbor decides to pop over just to ensure everything was alright, and then he noticed something else peculiar. The home's front door had been left open. He knocks. 
Hello? Though he was tempted to go inside and make sure everything was alright, he felt uneasy and decided, you know what, I'm gonna let the cops handle it, so he calls the authorities and asks them to come check in on his neighbor. Two officers, Detective Min and Crampton from the Palm Springs Police Department, arrive shortly after the call. The two men peek around but don't see anything leading them to believe that something was necessarily wrong at the property and definitely not enough to allow themselves inside legally. So they take off, they tell the neighbor, like, listen, if something pops up, if you see anything strange, let us know. You see something, you say something. Well, later that morning, just before noon, they would hear Cliff Lambert's name come up again, when close friend of Cliff's, Eddie Milligan, shows up at the Palm Springs Police Department and files a missing persons report for Cliff Lambert. Eddie tells the police officer that him and one of their other friends had been trying to get in contact with Cliff for the past day and a half, but he's not responding. The officer attempts himself to call Cliff, but no answer. He writes down the make and model of Cliff's Mercedes, runs a DMV check for the license plate, but beyond that, there wasn't much he could do. He said, you know, we'll keep an eye out, we'll let you know if if we hear anything, let us know if you hear from him. And he reached out to the officers that had been at the property earlier that morning. They're like, yeah, we went out on a suspicious circumstance call, but we didn't see anything to justify further investigation. The officers told Eddie, like, people go missing all the time. People are reported missing all the time. And then, you know, they show up a day later. But Eddie was upset. He It wasn't like Cliff. Something wasn't right and he knew it. The day before, on Saturday, December 6th, Cliff had made plans with Eddie to go to the Festival of Lights, which was a yearly tradition for them. It's basically like a light parade that they do every December. And he'd confirmed the plans on Friday afternoon with Cliff. But as Saturday morning began to turn into the later afternoon, Eddie became more and more concerned. And then it got later and later and still nothing from Cliff. By Saturday evening, as the crowds were gathering along Palm Canyon, awaiting the evening's events, there was still no word. That afternoon and evening, Eddie called Cliff a total of 24 times. As the parade came and went, the anxiety became stronger. Eddie calls one of their other friends and together they agree to go over to Cliff's house to see if he's there. Eddie was one of the only people Cliff trusted with a key to his house. They arrive around 11pm, but the front door was already left open, just as the neighbor found it the next day. Though it was unlike Cliff to leave the door ajar, they didn't really think anything of it, and they didn't end up closing it just in case it was on purpose. Inside, it was a bit messy, especially for Cliff's standards. There was half-consumed drinks on the table, Benson and Hedge cigarette packs thrown about, an odd sight because Cliff didn't smoke Benson and Hedges, and he certainly would never leave a mess behind. But then it hits Eddie. You know, maybe he had a date. Maybe he'd met a guy, had him over, and maybe they took off for the evening. He didn't want to investigate any further in the house because, you know, what if they were in a bedroom doing something? He didn't want to bother them, so they left the house as they found it. And I think we should probably at this point, let's just meet Cliff. Let's talk about him. Let's talk about his story. And then uh, we'll come back to December. So Cliff, he was born in Missouri on January 22nd, 1934. After he was born, his parents abandoned him and he was left at an orphanage, though he was adopted not long after. Throughout his childhood, anxiety and depression were pretty common themes. He struggled a lot with these feelings of being unwanted, presumably tied to his birth parents' abandonment, and he also struggled a lot with his sexuality. I mean, he's a gay kid growing up in Missouri during a time when it was not socially acceptable in any capacity. He dreamed of just having this fabulous life somewhere else. After finishing college in Missouri, where he studied theater, he couldn't wait to get out. 
He promptly moved to New York City with hopes of becoming a Broadway actor, but he knew that the chances of hitting it big were slim to none. Telling close friends, like, listen, if I don't make it by 30, I'm out. Though he did land some parts and have some minor success, by the time his 30th birthday rolled around, things hadn't quite taken off. So he's like, all right, what's next? Knowing that he wanted to stay in the creative field, he explored several different ventures into the art world, something he was very passionate about, and that's where he did ultimately end up finding his success. Cliff was an art lover through and through, but knew that for him and many others, art isn't something that's always obtainable. So he ends up moving to Los Angeles and creating a company called Lambert Studios and innovated a new technique of creating mail-order prints of famous original oil paintings without them looking like printed copies. They had texture like the originals. This company and this innovative design ended up taking off like wildfire, and it became well-known in the Los Angeles art scene. Which really just is the fucking best. Like this kid who had so many struggles as a child and just wanted to get out there and be someone finally felt like he was someone. Cut to about 1994, he's 60 years old and purchases his dream home in the Las Palmas neighborhood in Palm Springs. The neighborhood is filled with beautiful houses owned by a lot of different celebrities back in the day. I think like Liberace's house is like a few houses down from where his house sat. And he lived lavishly and quickly immersed himself into the Palm Springs society, famous for his extravagant Christmas and Easter parties at his home. And according to an article I found in SF Weekly, he could often be found flirting with younger men while out on the town. Not a surprise. Pretty common for Palm Springs. Did I not mention that earlier? Palm Springs is like gay, 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 gay. Very, very gay. You're gay and you want to go somewhere? Go to Palm Springs. It wasn't long after his move that he met 22-year-old Travis Hobbs in 1994, who was 38 years his junior, but the age gap didn't seem to get in the way. They ended up falling in love, getting married in a small ceremony in Canada. I know 2008 was like somewhat of a long time ago, but it also feels somewhat recent, and I was wondering, I'm like, why... Canada? Why did they go to Canada to get married? But then I realized I don't think gay marriage was legal here at the time, which is fucking wild. As time went on, their relationship began to suffer largely in part due to Travis's drinking. He was a partier for sure and appears to have some alcoholic tendencies and ultimately it ended up killing their relationship. Things got so bad that Travis actually ended up filing a restraining order on Cliff on one occasion and then finally had enough and walked out. Travis's friends have alluded to the fact that Cliff was just as much to blame for the dissolution of their marriage. Cliff's friends said Travis was just wild. Even though things in their relationship had gone to shit, Cliff was pretty devastated when things really came to an end, and he held out hope that maybe, maybe they'd eventually reconcile, but they would unfortunately never get the chance. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get right back into our story. Cult Leader is sponsored by BetterHelp. Cult Babes, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Are you hitting the gym, hitting the sheets for a little nap, looking at your neighbor's house on Zillow? Really though, if time was unlimited, how would you use it? How would you decide what's important enough to make time for? Unfortunately, time is not unlimited, but fortunately, therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. 
That's one of my biggest takeaways from therapy, figuring out where to devote time to make the rest of my life easier. I could go on forever about how much less stressful life is once I learn to prioritize my time, but why don't you see for yourself? Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash leader today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash leader. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. In 2007, Travis passed away. He was just 34 years old. According to his obituary, it was due to an unfortunate swimming incident. I think I read somewhere else that he drowned, so that makes sense. I also heard there was reportedly drugs in his system at the time. I think this was not long after his separation from Cliff. They were together for like 13 or 14 years, and I saw one comment on his online obituary from a friend of Cliff's, Brian Hotchkiss, that said, I knew Travis in 1994. He was very nice. And he won over my friend Cliff Lambert that year. I guess it was his fate to be with him for 14 years. A really great, great young man. It's a sentiment that I saw repeated several times during my research. Travis and Cliff were definitely in love at one point, and it's sad that it ended on such heavy terms. The death of Travis had a huge impact on Cliff. He was consumed by the grief. I watched this one show, which I'll tell you guys at the end because I can't remember which one it was. They talked to, they interview his friend Eddie, who says that he remembers, like, Cliff was not a crier, but called him just, like, fucking losing it the morning that he found out that Travis had passed away. He was just consumed by grief for the next couple months and he felt lonely, guilty, and truly didn't know where to go from there. By 2008, Cliff was slowly climbing out of his depression and started online dating at the behest of his pal Eddie. Eddie was like, you know, I I went online, I did online dating, I thought it was a great way to meet people, so I had him sign up for it. And he started flying young men in for visits a lot, which Eddie was like, uh, maybe that's not a good idea. Like, understandably concerned about Cliff. I mean, he's in his 70s now, he's wealthy, alone, clearly a target. Cliff did have some protection. One of his staff, an assistant 27-year-old named Lester, would sort of help vet the guys Cliff was talking to before Cliff would invite them for a visit. One day, he sends a message to this guy, Danny. Danny Garcia. He's an attractive 25-year-old from San Francisco. They end up hitting it off online, so he invites Danny to come visit him in Palm Springs for the weekend. Danny agrees, and Cliff books the flights. 
Now listen, clearly Cliff needed to amp up his research squad, because if they'd done a proper Google search, they would have found something pertaining to Danny's past, and we'll get to that in a bit. The weekend was fun. They went out to eat, laid out by Cliff's pool. Overall, we're having a nice time, though Cliff's interest in Danny began to become clouded when Danny's true intentions seemed to surface. He kept bringing up this computer security business startup thing that he was working on, and multiple times throughout the weekend tried to get Cliff to come on board as an investor for the company. Cliff, I think, just was annoyed because he's like, is this why you came here? Is this why you're talking to me, this older guy? And obviously, you know, you're not interested in me. Nevertheless, the weekend came to an end and they left on friendly terms, but it definitely wasn't the love story that I think Cliff was expecting. But about an hour after Danny left, something strange happened. A $16 charge hits Cliff's bank account from the Palm Springs airport. Danny had used Cliff's card to upgrade his flight home to first class, which like, first of all, that's a 40 minute flight. I don't even, I don't think there is a first class on a 40 minute flight like that. Like what, are you paying for the even more comfort, the even more space? All right. It was it worth it. Anyways, Cliff finds out about the charge and obviously it's not an expensive charge, but he's pissed that he did it. So he cancels his entire flight home, leaving Danny stranded at the airport, which like, good, fuck you. I think Danny ended up calling one of his cousins or something from the Bay Area to come drive down and pick him up. As the days passed after Danny's visit, it seemed like Cliff had struck a bout of bad luck. Just two weeks later, his house was robbed. But how could this be? Like, he was on it when it came to setting alarms and keeping the gates shut, doors locked. He's like, you know what? The call is coming from inside the house. Someone needed to know the codes to shut off the alarm. He thinks about it and immediately decides to blame a maid. Like, don't blame the maid. Well, he tells his friend Eddie, well, I asked her about it and she took her keys, put them down on the table and left. Good for her. Danny shows up a few weeks later with flowers knocking on the door and apologized for trying to get an investment and the flight charge and everything. And at first Cliff is like not having it. He's like, I don't trust this. But Danny calls him from a motel later on and convinces him to let him come over and make dinner. Just hear me out. Let me apologize. At dinner, Danny tells Cliff, the reason the computer company is so important to me is because I was molested when I was younger by a really wealthy older man in San Francisco. And it's not even about the money. It's my passion. Cliff sympathizes with him, but tells him he still won't be investing. And the truth is, it's partially because he couldn't afford to. His house cost him almost ten grand a month between the mortgage, maintenance, his staff, and he only had a couple hundred thousand dollars saved in his accounts. His money was dwindling. Shortly after, the house is hit again. This robbery was bad. They took a bulk of the artwork from the home, Cliff's most valuable prized possessions. Everything seemed fucked, but soon a phone call would change everything. Though his life in New York was long behind him, he was surprised to receive a call from a New York attorney, Samuel Oren, who told Cliff that he stood to inherit $2 million from a deceased friend. Now sure, this sounds sus, it sounds like a weird call to get out of the blue, it sounds like a scam, so let's get some insight. A few years back... May department store heiress Florine May Schoenborn, a friend of Cliff's, had actually left him $2 million in her will back in 1995, but it was contested by the deceased's loved ones uh, in court and Cliff ended up losing. So this lawyer guy tells him, like, listen, we found another copy of the will. It proves that the money is rightfully yours, so I would like to meet with you and go over the paperwork. The following night, on the evening of December 4th, the attorney is in Palm Springs having dinner with Cliff, discussing the will. 
The following day, on December 5th, 2008, the attorney calls Cliff again, is like, hey, listen, there's a few more items on the will I'd like to discuss. Cliff was down, partially stoked on the money, partially stoked on the attorney who was young, attractive, and, well, just Cliff's type. Cliff tells him, hey, why don't you come back to my place? The lawyer seemed interested in Cliff as well, and he comes over that evening. We'll continue our story after this quick word. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following day on December 6th, brings us back to that Saturday when Cliff ghosted Eddie. Between this day and the following few weeks, it's just this odd mystery and they're no closer to finding Cliff. Where was he? On January 7th of 2009, a neighbor spots a U-Haul outside of Cliff's home. Two men are emptying the house and they remember the detectives telling them to alert them of anything strange, which this seemed to be. When they arrive, there's just one guy there, Miguel Bustamante. They ask him what he's doing, and he tells him that he'd responded to a Craigslist ad asking for assistance to move the belongings of the home. When the police enter, most of Cliff's stuff is gone or stacked and ready to be taken out through the garage. They try calling Cliff once again, but no answer. The police decide to pay a visit to the address Miguel had given them earlier in the day, and it leads them to a motel room where they find all of Cliff's belongings. Miguel is placed under arrest on suspicion of theft after he's unable to prove that he was hired for this job. Three weeks later, the Palm Springs Police Department gets a call from a real estate agent in Northern California who said, This guy had approached him looking for assistance in selling his home in Palm Springs. The real estate agent was like, hmm, you know, like, that's weird. That's odd. Why are you not using a real estate agent based in Palm Springs? And they end up looking up the name of the homeowner, and that's when they discover it was Cliff Lambert, a missing person from Palm Springs, which, duh, led to this real estate agent calling the authorities. They're like, oh shit. Detective Min comes up with a plan. He asked the real estate agent to play along and go through with the sale so that they could try and create a trail to whoever was trying to sell the home in order to find out maybe what happened to Cliff. They learn that Cliff's power of attorney has been signed over to a man named Russell Manning, a successful art dealer based in San Francisco. Even more bizarre, the paperwork was signed on December 11th, days after Cliff was last seen. Authorities in San Francisco try to track down this Russell Manning guy, whoever he is, but when they show up to his place, he's not there. They go back to the paperwork looking for anything to help clear up some of the confusion and then it hits them. In California, to sign over power of attorney, the person, so in this case Cliff Lambert, must provide a fingerprint on the document. So they run the fingerprint and lo and behold, it comes back to a man named David Rapogel, a San Francisco attorney. Now they've got some questions, right? Like, how are these guys, first of all, connected to Cliff Lambert? Why is this David Rapogel attorney guy putting his fingerprint down in place of Cliff's? So they end up putting out a warrant for both the attorney and Russell Manning. They soon get another clue. They see that the deed to Cliff's Palm Springs house has been signed over by Russell to a man named Kashal Narula. A simple Google search of his name showed authorities he had a history of conning. Now, this guy was a bullshitter among bullshitters. He would con people out of hundreds of thousands of dollars throughout his life by telling them he was an exiled prince of Nepal whose family had been overtaken by a political coup. He'd been doing it for years and had a record to prove it. They also discovered he had an upcoming court date in San Francisco. 
So they knew where this guy would be, when he'd be there, and they showed up to the courthouse on the day of his trial and arrested him then and there. He was shocked. But it gets better because guess who was with him? His attorney, David Rapogel. They arrest him as well. Kashal denies knowing Cliff Lambert or anything about the disappearance. They keep pressing him, and finally he gives them a tip that changes everything. Well, the only person that I do know is this this guy I'm friends with. He seems kind of off. This guy, Danny. Danny Garcia. This was on March 9th of 2009, so at this point, Cliff's been missing for about three months. Police find Danny at his condo, via the address that Kashal gave them. And a week later, they interview him, but he tells them, listen... Kashal has always tried to blame me for things. He's always up to something. I'm not surprised. Everything's kind of at a standstill for the police, right? Because the two just keep putting the blame back on one another. But then there's another break. An inmate who was a cellmate of Miguel's when he was being held on the theft charges tells them that if they help him with his charges, that he's got some major information he can tell them. And he just sang like a canary. He tells them Miguel said that Cliff is dead. He was taken care of. Miguel also told them the name of some other guys that were involved. Details that the inmate gave them helped add more pieces to the puzzle, but it was finally coming together. The evidence was just pouring in at this point. When they brought Danny in, they took his phone and seized it as evidence and found some crazy shit. Thousands of texts between Danny and Kashal. Hundreds from the first week of December, so these two guys that were trying to blame each other had really been working together the entire time. It was Danny who brought Kashal in on the deal, knowing that he loved a con. And surprise, surprise, Danny had his own connection with David Rapogel, the attorney who was arrested with Kashal for forging Cliff's power of attorney. Whew, are you with me? <laughs> are you guys all with me here? It's, it's a lot going on, a lot of new characters. Okay, so I want to talk about Danny's connection with David Rapogel, the attorney, because I feel like it also ties in a lot of the story from earlier as well. There's a lot to unpack and much more happening beyond that $16 flight upgrade charge. This was not Danny's first time duping an older wealthy man. In 2004, Danny partnered up with a lawyer, David, and went after San Francisco millionaire Thomas White claiming he'd been molested by the older man. So that's the guy that he was talking about when he was trying to pitch this new computer program to Cliff. It ended up being a very public trial, and Danny was awarded $500,000, which he split with his attorney. Now, I would never question sexual assault, and I'm, I'm not questioning sexual assault. It didn't end there after the trial, and here's where it gets kind of weird. So after the trial concluded, David, the lawyer, with the help of Danny, went down to Puerto Vallarta in Mexico and gathered around 50 young boys and basically bribed them into filing similar charges against Thomas White. Thomas was a philanthropist and had spent a lot of time in Puerto Vallarta where he owned properties and donated time and money to local charities there, so they knew he had a tie. Authorities end up going after him, though it ended up getting complicated because he was actually in Thailand doing charity work at local orphanages there. He's arrested and jailed in Thailand before being extradited to Mexico to face the charges in court there, where he ultimately loses and is forced to remain in jail, where he later died in 2013. He spent his last few years trying to clear his name, and his lawyer really tried to be like, look, this isn't what it looks like. He said, this is the work of con men, referring to Danny and David, and a lot of the boys that originally agreed to go after Thomas later recanted their 
statements admitting that they were paid off by David. It's this weird, unfortunate scenario. I don't know if Thomas was in fact innocent, per se. I mean, he could have been responsible for molestation, but a lot of it was prompted by bribery. Needless to say, Danny knew that if he had this attorney by his side, they could really go after whoever he wanted. In addition to attracting a lot of press, it's also where he first met Kashal. So they met in 2004 because Kashal had been paying attention to the trial and began buddying up to Danny. So they're just like two scammers who found each other. So back to where we left off. Clearly Danny and Kashal are working together here. Throughout their investigation, police end up discovering their master plans, which initially revolved around kidnapping Cliff Lambert, and they called it Operation Craigslist, or Operation CL. They knew they needed help with the kidnapping, which is when they first approached Miguel Bustamante. And I almost feel like partially bad. Not not really, but... Well, so here's the story. Miguel was a bartender... One night, Danny and Kashal come in and they just tell him this whole story that Cliff had raped Kashal and ended up giving him HIV. And Miguel was like, what the fuck? Like, that's crazy. Of course. Yeah, I'll help you. Whatever you need. And they were like, well, we want to kidnap him. And he was like, I'll do it. I'll help kidnap him. Just pay me 30 grand and I'm on board. Miguel then asked his roommate, Craig, to assist him in the kidnapping. For their plan to work, Danny would need to cozy up to Cliff once again, which takes us back to the night he showed up apologizing with flowers. Connecting the dots, we're connecting the dots, everything is starting to make sense, right? Okay, so that's why he showed up with the flowers. It wasn't because he felt bad. Of course Danny didn't feel bad. He's a con artist. When that plan failed because Cliff wasn't really keen on taking Danny back in, remember he was like, oh, I'm good. That's when they came up with the idea for Kashal to impersonate the lawyer from New York. That's right. Kashal was the lawyer from New York. So I guess things really went awry when Kashal couldn't convince Cliff to sign the paperwork the night they were together, which put a huge roadblock in their plan. And that's ultimately what changed the plan from kidnapping to Moida. Here's how it went down. Miguel and Craig had actually been waiting at Cliff's house for him to return home after dinner, but they couldn't do it. That's why Kashal went back the following night to Cliff's house. He pretended to go to the restroom at one point, but really he was letting Craig and Miguel in through a side door in the kitchen. He goes back to the living room and sits down with Cliff. Cliff hears a noise. It's coming from the kitchen. I'm going to go check it out. He goes to investigate and bam. Miguel and Craig hold him down while Miguel stabs him several times with one final blow with the knife through the back of his neck. They take the body and wrap it up in a sheet and place it into the trunk of Cliff's Mercedes and Cashel tells them to get rid of it. Knowing that they're handling the body, he spends the next few days with David Rapogel, going over all of the paperwork, getting it signed over, the house sold, everything that they can do. Oh shit, which reminds me, okay, so Russell Manning, right, the guy that they initially signed everything over to, it's so twisted. So his job was really just to pull the money out of his bank accounts, and they allowed him to take $5,000 in order to be their financial scapegoat. And then they sent him on this, like, mission to Mexico. They made up an excuse for him to go down to Mexico. And while he was there, they called the authorities in Mexico and said that he had drugs on him. So he was in fucking jail at this point because they wanted to make sure that he would be unable to be found if something went wrong. So they now have Danny Garcia, Kashal Narul, the attorney David Rapogel, and Miguel in custody. They're just missing Craig, Miguel's roommate, who helped with the murder. 
Craig ends up telling the authorities everything, draws them a map of where the body was buried, but unfortunately the desert is massive and they were unable to pinpoint where Cliff was buried before the trial. Lisa DiMaria was the attorney for the trial and she just fucking like went in on all of them. I watched some clips of her at the trial and she's like not having it with their excuses. Danny Garcia, Kashul Naruli, David Rapogel, and Miguel Bustamante were each sentenced to life in prison without parole. Because Craig cooperated and he copped a plea deal and he was given 25 years in prison and then Russell Manning was given five years for the fraudulent paperwork. What confuses me the most probably out of all of this is honestly like Russell Manning was a successful art dealer. Why would you take part in a crime where you're getting $5,000? Like $5,000 is truly nothing maybe one month's rent in San Francisco. Like, I I can't even imagine why he would get roped in that. But it's crazy. It's like so many different layers to this story. Every piece of information, every book I read, every article I read, I had to go through with like a fine-tooth comb because I kept getting so confused because there are so many different players. Maybe this is an episode you listen to twice. I don't know. They ended up actually finding Cliff's skull and jawbone near Castaic, California, and were able to identify them the following year in September of 2017. So they found them in 2016, and they identified them as his remains in 2017. It's just sad, but that's it. That is the story of Cliff Lambert. It's also crazy to think that it feels like, I mean, that that was somewhat, somewhat recent. Until next time, uh, please, 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 please do not fly strangers into your home from the internet. Goodbye. Oh, few orders of business. You can subscribe to Cult Leader on Patreon at patreon.com slash cult leader. There is, I think, four episodes of Obituary up now. They're every they're coming out every other Thursday, where we share outlandish obituaries and wild criminal stories. And I just talk shit with my best friend Madison. It's so much fun. I cannot wait. I get to see Madison on Wednesday to record next week. Well, this week, I think by the time you guys will be listening and I'm just thrilled to be able to sit back down and record with her. Monday is March 8th and that is International Women's Day. I will once again be donating to the Downtown Women's Center in LA. I'll share the link on Instagram stories if you want to contribute as well or if you have an organization that is closer to home for you highly encourage you to celebrate with me by donating to all of our wonderful women out there. Lastly, I have a correction from the O.J. Simpson episode uh, from like two weeks ago. I used an article in it. I pulled quotes from an article and I mentioned the article in the episode that and it, the article itself is from the 90s and it uses some very outdated terms so i went ahead and just edited that portion out if any of you caught that just so everyone feels good love you guys respect you guys and uh, i'll see you next time
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.